hard time last week. How in the world am I going to do it today? You know, the last song and then those prayers and the reality of what is soon upon us as a church. But it is good, it is good to see God develop and shape and then to be a part of that sending process. And uh, we're just very, very thankful that we have had the privilege of serving alongside the Blossers, even if it's only just been a year. If you have been on the internet lately and done any Googling about the Webb telescope, you know that there are some incredible images that are coming from deep space. There are so many new things that are being discovered that the astronomers who are looking at all the data that's coming in from this telescope are having to refigure all their formulas, all their theories. Things didn't happen at this time, so they're going to have to figure out the new age of the universe. They've altered long-held beliefs about the vastness of the universe. And while I disagree with many of their presuppositions and conclusions, what is undeniable is that the glory and the vastness of the universe in which God created makes this earth feel like a small speck of dust. I believe those that read and study John's gospel will find an even more disruptive and paradigm-shifting discovery. And it's this, Jesus is the divine, eternal God through whom all creation came into being, and he took on flesh in order to deliver sinners from darkness. Typically, when I begin a new series in the book of the Bible, preaching through, as we did First Samuel, I'll preach a sermon on the whole of the book to kind of give us an idea of where we're going, but I don't have to do that in John's gospel. Because he does that for us in the first 18 verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have your copy of the Scriptures, I encourage you to open to John chapter 1. And this morning we're going to dig into this Gospel. We'll be here probably for the rest of the year, maybe even a little longer. Um, It is a rich book that teaches us much about who Jesus is. In these words, it's a prologue as it were, John tells us, where he's going in the book. And in fact, as we get toward the end of John, in chapter 20 and verse 31, John tells us his whole purpose for writing. You know what it is? It's really simple. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we look at our passage this morning, there's five movements in this prologue, these 18 verses. In verses 1 and 2, we see the Word and God. In verses 3 through 5, we see the Word and creation. And then in verses 6 through 8, it is the Word and His witness. And then verses 9 through 14, it is the Word incarnate when the Word stepped onto the globe. And then John closes out with the Word's excellence in verses 15 through 18. So I'm going to repeat those five movements because they will act as the structure for our text this morning. This time, instead of just giving you all the highlights, because I'm going to repeat those, I'm just going to give you the verses. So we see verses 1 and 2 as a section, verses 3 through 5, 6 through 8, 9 through 14, and then 15 through 18. So if you just jot those down, hopefully you'll be able to pick up the headings along the way. And for anyone that's interested as we are beginning this new series in the Gospel of John, there are books that Misty has purchased for us that are on the Connect desk. Uh, There's kind of two versions of it. Um, One's got a pretty color, which we could say would be for the fair among us. The other is just black, which is universal. So you can choose, but they are journals of the Gospel of John. So it's a little paperback. It's got the entire epistle of John, 
On one side will be the text. On the other side of the page will be blanks for writing notes and journaling and whatnot. And it goes all the way through the Gospel of John. They're like two bucks. And it'd be a great way to supplement your Bible study, or you can even use it as your sermon notes each Sunday morning, just to make you aware of that. So let's begin. Verses 1 through 2, hear from God's Word. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to work our way through it. Please follow along and hear the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write its truths upon our hearts. Lord, we simply ask that you would give us this awesome picture of who you are. That you would teach us so that we might believe, so that we might increase in our devotion and our affection for you. Bless us now as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 1 through 2, John presents very foundational truths. Now, we could do an entire message about the ramifications, the implications, and the actual propositions that John gives in these verses. And so I'm going to keep my head down right here at the beginning and look at my notes so I don't go off script because of time's sake. I will try to be as concise as possible. So what we see in these first two verses is the Word and God. And what I mean by that is you look at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And what John is saying is it's preexistent. Before the world was created, at a time when there was nothing, guess what? The Word already existed. John's point is is very simple. The Word has eternally existed in verse 1. And then he goes on, not only is it preexistent, not like some matter, but he also says the Word was with God. Now maybe you're here this morning at the invitation of a good friend, and we want to thank you for coming and being here. Who is God? That's a big question. Let me just condense it in this fashion. He is the one supreme supernatural being who is both creator and sustainer of the universe. And so as John the Apostle refers to God here in verse 1, it is God the Father. And this is really important because since only God and the Word pre-existed before the beginning, what does it tell us? It tells us that the Word and God shared a presence. 
They had some kind of personal relationship, fellowship, and yet they are distinct beings. But John doesn't stop. Not only was the Word before the beginning, not only is the Word with God in that pre-existent, eternal place, but then he goes on to say the Word was God. And the order in the Greek reads this way. In our English translation, it says, and the Word was God, but in the Greek it reads, God was the Word. And what's interesting about that is the the Apostle John, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did not add a definite article for God as he did with the Word. You see the difference? God is alone. The Word is set apart as unique. And this has troubled us some as we've witnessed to our friends who are maybe of the understanding that Jesus is a created being by God, that he was the firstborn of creation as though he didn't exist pre-eternally with the Father, as though he wasn't distinct from, but that he was a created being. And so let me help us this morning. If it read, the God was the Word both having the definite article, the clause would mean that the Word and God were one and the same person with no distinction between them. Now, you didn't think you were going to English class today, but this is really important, okay? Because John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, did not say the God, but he said God, that lack of a definite article indicates this, that the Word was divine. It maintained, John maintained a distinction between the Word and God. And so he's laying a theological groundwork right here at the very beginning that Christians worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And understanding these verses will help us to avoid the heresy that says that Jesus was created. In fact, what John says is that the Word, although it is distinct from God, it is also of the very same essence and character as God. And so, we have a statement like this. The Son was with God, and the Son was Himself God. This does not mean that the Son was the Father, but that both the Son and the Father are God. Verse 2 simply summarizes all of what John has said. This very pregnant statement in verse 1. I say that with a smile because we've had new babies this week. The Petersons just welcomed in another boy. We've got more coming, and we've already had some just last month. It's so exciting. But John simply summarizes in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God before anything else existed. In eternity past, the Word existed with God, and he also is God. So it's not surprising if John is going to make this bold statement about the Word and God that he quickly moves from the divine to the temporal in verses 3 through 5. And so now we see that the Word interacts with his creation. Look at verses 3 through 5. And let's be clear, John doesn't say that the Word is a part of creation. The Word is transcendent. It's completely apart from it, not a part of it but apart from it. And so creation becomes the tool that God is going to use to reveal who the Word is. All things were made through Him. John positively states that the Word made or created all things from subatomic particles we call quarks to the vast expanse of the universe. The Word made everything that exists outside of the Godhead. And John then restates this point in reverse. You notice that in verse 3? All things were made through him. And then he says, and without him was not anything made that was made. He wants it to be very clear. This eternal word that coexisted with God yet is distinct from God is also the word that God used to make all things that exist. And there is no thing that exists outside of what the Word was instrumental in bringing about. He made everything. 
Everything owes its existence to the Word. And this is where it's really important for us because some of us are coming into this service this morning, this gathering, and we wonder, what does God have to do with me? I owe Him nothing. He has not delivered anything to me. He's not given me anything good. My life is full of trouble and toil and hardship. I ask for things. I don't get them. I work and my money, it's like it's just sifting pouring through my fingers. I can't get ahead. I've got these conflicts, these problems. Right here at the beginning of his book, John is wanting to make it very clear to each and every reader, you owe your existence to this word. And therefore, it's incumbent upon you to know who he is and how to rightly interact with him. In him, John says in verse 4, was life and the life was the light of man. We learn that the Word is the source of life. He created life, and the Word is the light of men. So John wants his readers to know that physical life, I mean the Word, Genesis 3 or Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John is grabbing that Old Testament language and he's importing it into his letter because he wants people to see the connection. The spoken Word that created all things is now the embodied word in Jesus as we get to verses 9 through 14. But he says he created physical life and, and spiritual or eternal life come from God, come from this word. You look at John 3.15. John uses a double meaning for light. Jesus is the light of the world as well as the light that embodies the truth from God about divine revelation. And then verse 5 is ironic in the sense that we're only five verses into his letter and there is automatically a tension that John raises. The first conflict comes to us. That the light shines in the darkness, which you would think is a good thing. I tripped over some stuff last night in the dark. Light would have been good. But what do we read in verse 5? The darkness has not overcome it. So somehow there's this struggle between light and dark that we're not told what is that yet. That's where he's going to develop that more in his book. But we need to understand a couple things about this. First, the light is in, shining into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a seamless connection to verse 4. John uses symbolism In verse 5, the light has come, it had to come, because darkness is actually blinding us. The word shines in spiritual darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, John has this double meaning. Darkness was a well-used metaphor in the ancient world. And you've got to think, why? Well, because they didn't have this stuff. The only light was the sun or a candle. There were no torches, as our British cousins say. There were no flashlights. There was no electricity or an understanding of it. And so darkness was this metaphor that was widely used to describe sin, evil, chaos, Satan, brokenness. And John taps into that understanding with his readers. These hostile powers could not master the word. They could not master the light. They could not overcome it. They could not extinguish it. They could not gain control over the light. And secondly, John says, not only has darkness failed to overthrow the light, but secondly, people who have come into contact with the light yet refuse to acknowledge and accept the truth, they also are unable to prevent the light from being light. The light is still going to shine. So friend, you can deny the existence of God. You could deny that Jesus was anything more than a great Jewish rabbi. It's still going to shine. He is the light of the world. And you can't quench that. Many have tried and all have failed. This light of God, Jesus, who is both life to people and divine truth is 
in opposition to the evil environment. And this theme will run throughout John's gospel. A great struggle is taking place. And sinful creation is in rebellion against their creator. They are frustrated because God cannot be overcome in spite of all the cosmos's best efforts. The darkness will never defeat the light. These are not just themes from Lucas's Star Wars films. This is gospel truth put on a level that even the children among us can understand. When God spoke light into existence in Genesis 1, when God's creation was marred by the fall in Genesis 3, or when all the devil and his minions were celebrating Jesus' death at Calvary, and it, it appeared that darkness had won, not once has darkness overcome the light. The death knell of this epic struggle was sounded at the cross and again at the tomb's opening. Thus, the word that begets life is also the same word that brings light to men. He is the light of the world, we're told in 8.12 and 9.5 of John's Gospel. And this image of light was common in the ancient world. John wants us to understand, as he shows us in John chapter 9, that Jesus will give sight to a blind man. A man who his entire life has been walking around in darkness. Then in John 11, Jesus will give life to a dead man in raising a Lazarus. John's choice of words is so rich and full of meaning right from the outset of his gospel. He wants all who struggle against the darkness of this fallen and satanic world to see and know. Behold our God as we just sang. To see Christ's victory. Because we who believe in Him shall also overcome through Him. Now, you got to ask, why does the apostle interrupt this beautiful teaching in these first five verses on the Word to then talk about John the baptizer? So I might say John B, that's baptizer. John A, the apostle. Or I might just say the apostle. That's the guy that wrote the Gospel of John. The baptizer He's the guy that's talked about here in verses 6 through 8 and then again in verse 15. And we'll learn more about him next week. Maybe it was because John's ministry was so widespread, as we see in the book of Acts, chapter 18 and 19, that John's disciples had such an affection for John that they thought he was superior to Jesus. And so the apostle, John A., wants to use John B.'s own words to say that he understood that Jesus would be superior. As we look at this passage, look at verses eight, 6 through 8. We see that John shifts from the Word and creation to the Word and His witness. The Word and His witness. John was a witness. He pointed to the light. John, we are told, came into being. See that in verse 6? There was a man sent from God. John's origins, his whole purpose for being was because God made him for this unique purpose. He came into being, yet what a contrast. Jesus was before the beginning. You ready for this? John testified, believe in Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith, our belief. And the apostle asserts Jesus' superiority over the Baptist without diminishing the work of John B.'s ministry, his important and unique ministry. John was a witness, but Jesus was the light. John was someone made by God. Jesus is equal with God because he's been eternal with the Father. In the ESV, the word witness appears three times in verses 6 through 7. John will use witness as a theme throughout his gospel. Not only does he want people to believe in the eternal, divine, transcendent word, by pointing out this singular theme of John B.'s ministry, the apostle is making the case that this was the most important thing that John B. ever did. He pointed people to Jesus. His commentary on John The Gospel of John, Leon Morris, makes two observations about a witness, which, honestly, are are not that profound, but they're helpful. 
One, a witness establishes the truth, right? You think of a courtroom. You got all these different stories, but you have two or three witnesses that have the exact same story. It's pretty convincing that's the truth, that everything else is going to be shaped, responded to. There's a second thing. Not only does a witness establish the truth, a witness commits himself to the truth. No longer is a witness neutral about what is true or not true. They've clearly planted their feet here. This is the truth I will testify to. And so, here's John speaking. John the Baptist is using his own ministry and his words to point people to the truth and call them to commit themselves to it. But it's not just John that did this. It's we who have believed. We also are called to be witnesses to the truth. We also are called to commit ourselves to it. And yet, this is really amazing. God has Himself become a witness. God has Himself committed to proving the truth is the truth. He does this at Jesus' baptism. He does it at His transfiguration. He does it as the resurrection. God is not willing that anybody would be confused about the fact of who Jesus is. He is the Word who was with God and who is God. He is the Word that created. He is the Word that was witnessed to by the Apostle, by the baptizer, and by God Himself. Now, the Apostle wants us to share this with others. And we must remember that as we witness about Jesus, that we are not Jesus. No elder is Jesus. No pastor, no teacher, no friend, no parent. We are all followers of Jesus and thus called to make disciples of Him and not ourselves. And if you're here today as a skeptic or an agnostic, you, you might easily just dismiss our testimony. Well, that's, that's what Christians, I'm glad I came, I know what South Canyon believes about Jesus, and that's good for you, and you can dismiss our testimony, our witness. But let me just warn you and remind you, there's a day coming and you won't be able to ignore God's witness. What you're hearing today about Jesus makes you accountable to God on that day. And in just eight verses, three witnesses have given testimony about the Word. God, the baptizer whom God sent, and the apostle who's writing this gospel. Perhaps there's even a reluctant fourth witness in darkness who has to confess, I could not overcome the light. I keep trying. And so, friend, I implore you to continue exploring what the Bible teaches about Jesus. There's a blue Bible in a chair around you. Take that as a gift from our church. Read it. Read ahead in the Gospel of John. And find out for yourself who this divine, eternal, creative Word is. We pray that you will trust Him. We pray that you will come back each week and learn more about Him. So, how will this divine, eternal Word who creates, which is known by the Father, be revealed in His creation? And the Apostle's answer is shocking. As we look at verses 9-14, through 14, the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. So verses 9-14, through 14, we see the Word is incarnate. This is our fourth point, and it's the longest section of John's prologue. So I'm going to try to move quickly through this. He's laid his biblical and theological foundation. God, or, or the Word is God, and all things were made through the Word... And then John B. even testified about the Word and pointed to Jesus as the one for people to follow. And now the Apostle addresses how was the Word revealed to His creation? And then how will creation respond to the Word? In short, the Word takes on flesh. He becomes a human and sadly and tragically, in verses 9-11, through 11, we see that the world 
would have nothing to do with their Creator. Jesus is described as the true light coming into the world, verse 9. The light which gives light to everyone, as opposed to the false lights that led people astray. Jesus is not a competitor. One of many options out there in the marketplace of gods and religions, of philosophies and ideas about which we can order our lives. Jesus is exclusively the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is not a counterfeit. He is the true light which gives light to everyone. Matthew ties into this. Matthew chapter 4, he quotes from an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 42. He says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And this is our prayer that each and every Sunday the light of who Jesus is will shine forth in this church, in these classrooms during life classes, in our small groups during the week, in our Bible studies, that God's truth will dawn on people who are trapped in darkness, who are blinded by darkness, who are bound by darkness. How does Jesus give light to everyone in verse 9? If everyone includes those who resist the light, yet are unable to overcome it in verse 5. Now this is, this is a really fun puzzle to play around with this week. You see, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So how, in verse 5, so how does the true light which gives light to everyone, what, what's the value of the light that's received but rejected? Well, as you look at this, I think the best answer is to understand that the giving of light is something quite different than what one does with the light. So if you've ever shared the gospel with a family member or a friend, I mean, you've been praying and praying and praying. You've been working up the courage because if you're non-Christian here, it's scary talking to you guys about Jesus. Like, we all want to shrink back. It's easier for me because, in a sense, this is a bully pulpit, although I, I, don't, I don't bully people. But, you know, I, it's safe space for me. But when I'm sitting in the coffee shop, when I'm meeting someone on the street and talking, my throat ties up in knots, my stomach does flip-flops. It is hard to talk about Jesus in spite of how great Jesus is. We get scared about this. Some of us have been praying for friends and family and we've been sharing the good news with them and yet they don't believe. And so, this is what this verse is speaking to, I think, here as we wrestle with how is it that not everyone will be believing. And I think the best answer is that what we learn about Jesus from the Bible or what we learn about Jesus from a Christian's witness is simply this. Jesus is showing us who we are in view of a coming judgment. Jesus is showing us what is about to happen. We gain a level of understanding about our spiritual state before a holy God. That's what the light does. The light shows you where Legos are on the floor. The light shows you where the laundry basket is. The light shows you where the furniture is where the shoes are. It shows you the state, and then you have to respond to that understanding with faith and belief. But it's not the same thing to see it as being convinced that what you see is the truth, that Jesus really is the answer. Simply put, the light exposes who we really are, full stop. What we do with that is an entirely different thing. And so as we look at verses 10 through 11, although the light took up residence in the world, the world didn't know him. Even we read that his own people didn't receive him. Creation, can you imagine the indignity? I've made a lot of things in my life. Um, Kids are the only things that I've made that have actually done this to me, though not really respected their creator on a human level, right? I built decks, framed houses, poured a lot of concrete. I've never had any of it say, dude, what are you doing? This is out of plumb. This is out of square. You didn't do this right. 
And so the, just the, the shock of the fact that the Creator comes into His world and the world does not know Him. And in fact, the world does not want to know Him. Even when the light is shining on who they are, the world says, don't care. Not interested. Not going to pursue it. Whether it was because of misplaced affections and loyalties, indifference, or hate, the people who came into contact with the Jesus of Nazareth, they missed out on the great opportunity to know who the Word was in their midst. We could say, well, the Gentiles had an excuse. They didn't have the covenant. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the history the Jewish people had. Well, that's true. But what's the excuse for the Jews? Like the Gentiles, they also, instead of embracing the Word and bringing Him into their homes and their hearts, they shut Him out, we read. Why didn't the world know Him? Why didn't His own people receive Him? Well, Jesus gives this answer in John 3.20. And He says this. Brace yourself for this. These are Jesus' words. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And there is the rub. Our sinful nature has so distorted our thinking we can never be challenged. And when we are, well, we just dismiss it. We just ignore it. We argue against it. We get loud and belligerent and we say, you're wrong. That's not the way it is. And Jesus says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This proves that just hearing or just seeing about Jesus is not the same thing as believing in Jesus. You know, my greatest fear as a parent is that my children, whom I do love, would grow up around all the trappings of Christianity, all the cultural language, all the experiences of church, and not believe in Jesus. They see, they hear, but belief is an entirely different thing. This is why we pray every Sunday night that we gather for the salvation of those children in our church. We do not want to make disciples of us, hypocrites. We want to make followers of Jesus who believe in him. So there, here's a commercial. Come back, all of you, tonight at five. Let's get on our knees and let's pray that God would just pour out his blessing on our church and that we would see conversions, that we would see people restored and made whole. People who are blinded would have their eyes opened. Thanks be to God, though, that not all rejected Jesus. Notice in verses 12 through 14. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. You see what's the difference? They didn't just see things about Jesus. They didn't just hear things about Jesus. They believed the things they saw and heard about Jesus. Actually confirmed Jesus is the word. All who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Later, Jesus will say, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you are searching for truth in this world, you will not find truth any other place, in any other person than in Jesus. I know there's countless books. Simon and & Schuster and all the publishers are producing more and more content. And here's how to fix your life. Here's how to fix that annoying person. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. But real truth, foundational truth that answers the questions of who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? That is only going to be answered in Jesus. And we have to be bold as witnesses about these things. You can go to drugs, you can go to alcohol, you can go to all kinds of promiscuity, you can do anything you want in the world, and it will leave you parched and dry 
and broken. Jesus says, I came so that you may have life and life more abundantly. We contrast that with any other teaching in, in this world. You, you measure the two, and I guarantee you, you will find Jesus more satisfying, more excellent. But let's continue. Jesus, or John says this in these really powerful statement in verse 12. All, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I want to press in on three words here in verse 12. The word gave, the word right, and the word children. What does gave mean? Who gave? To, to what was given? What was given and to whom was it given? Well, let's just read it again slowly. The word gave the gift of God's acceptance. Because we are born into darkness, because we practice sin, we are all, every single one of us, estranged from God who is holy and cannot look upon sin. And therefore, the only way we can gain acceptance from God is through receiving, through believing in the Word in Jesus. There's nothing that we can do that is sufficient to bring us to God. Only the Word can give us this gift where God will say, you and I were right. We are reconciled. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. You've been declared free from sin. Now, look at this right, this word right. We pass from death to life. John 5.24 says, we have received, he gave us something, the acceptance with God, the favor of God, but he also gave us the right, a new status before God as the result of this gift. And that leads to the word children. What is the new right? What is the new status that we're given? We are now called children of God. Now what John does that the other gospels don't do is John is so clued into the idea and the teaching that Jesus is the Son of God that he will call us as Christians children, not sons. There's only one Son of God. We are children. But let's think about this blessed thought. Through Jesus, man, you and I, we can be made right with God and we're given a new identity. We're given a new status. We are justified Oh, blessed thought, we are sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood had pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. The writer of Completing These says, From the beginning of his gospel, John wants us to understand the spiritual change that incurs in those who reject themselves and trust in Christ instead. It is saving faith. It is belief in Jesus' name. And so, what is this? We have to unpack this name, and then I'm going to have to cut it short for this week, and we'll pick up here next week. The idea that there is a name that is significant in verse 12 is really important for us. Parents, you stress out over the names of your kids. I remember that, right? It's what are they going to name? How are they going to be named? We're all waiting for the big reveal on the Blosser Baby Boy. Some of us, I'm told, know what it is. I am in the dark. Not the darkness, but I am in ignorance at this point in time. But names matter. And in biblical times, names were really important because they stood for someone's personality. It encompassed the character of the being. So just going back to our study through 1 Samuel, you remember what Samuel's name is? What it meant? According to Samuel chapter 1 and verse 20, it meant asked for from the Lord. The name Samuel means asked for from the Lord. And then later, what do we read in, in 1 Samuel chapter 25? Remember the guy Nabal? And his name meant worthless or fool, and such was he. You see how these names embodied who they were? The name of Jesus has that kind of power. 
It has that kind of significance. And John wants us to understand that his believing in his name in verse 12 means that we believe in everything that John has laid out to this point in his gospel, that he is the divine Son of God, the eternal Word through whom all creation came to be, that he is light and life, that he is the Savior and the King. To believe in his name in the name of Jesus, is to believe in all that has been testified about Jesus from God, from the apostle, and from the baptizer. And sinner, this is our plea to you, to believe in the name of Jesus. Trust in his personhood. Believe in him and on him and through him. This is the saving faith that transforms. And once again, after stating his proposition in verse 12, John reinforces it from a negative in verse 13. We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. My parents are Christians. Praise the Lord for that. That does me no eternal good, though. I had to personally believe in Jesus. I had to personally come to the understanding of what the light was showing me about the darkness in my heart, about the fact that I would be bound for a just judgment. I had to believe things about Jesus that were taught to me by Christians that came to me from reading the Word. And then the Spirit had to bring about a conviction that these things are indeed true. Our heritage doesn't do it. Procreation can't do it. Being Jews doesn't do it. We can't achieve it by our own work. We can't achieve it because we want it. You can go out and make a million dollars. You can't make yourself righteous. It's irrefutable in John's gospel. He says it in verse 12. It is a gift that is given to you for believing in the name. And then that gift gives you rights and privileges you could not earn. Salvation, friend, it is a miracle. It is a miracle that any of us are saved. I mean, you look around this room, we may have a lot of commonalities, but let me just tell you, we're a lot more different than we are in, have in common. The fact that we assemble together as South Canyon Baptist Church, that unifying thread that pulls all of our hearts together, that weaves us into a tapestry known in this community as a congregation of South Canyon Baptist Church is the result of the miracle of salvation. It's the, it's the grace of God that brings us together, that forms us. Amen, sister. John is doing all this on purpose. He wants us to know the only way to be accepted by God and join this heavenly family is to receive and believe in who Jesus is. And after writing about our inabilities in verse 13, look what he says in verse 14, and and we'll stop here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. What is John saying? Hey, in contrast to all of your inabilities, let me just point you once again to the glorious Jesus. He took on flesh in order to give you heaven's reward. He shifts to the incarnation. This eternal word of God took a human body, and in such a short phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is tapping into all this Old Testament history and knowledge of the tabernacle where the incarnate word dwelt in a tent. Where, where I'm sorry, not the incarnate world, word, but God shows up to Israel in the tent. He camped out there. And the tabernacle may be a new term for some of us, but for the Christian, this isn't the first time we've come across this in the Bible. John is intentionally connecting Old Testament experiences in the wilderness with Jesus. Exodus through Deuteronomy, the tabernacle was the tent where God met with his people. It's the only place they were permitted to worship him. It was the only place where God committed his presence to be in the midst of his people. The Shekinah glory filled that tabernacle. John is telling us that same kind of glory, that same kind of focal point for worship ought to be Jesus. 
He takes these rich truths and experiences, and he says, when the Word took on flesh, he tabernacled, he dwelt here with us. And there is no fence keeping women out or Gentiles out. There's no one that can't go in but just one person one time a year into the Holy of Holies. We can boldly, the writer of Hebrews says, go before the throne of grace. We have a, a high priest, a mediator, a champion who gives us access to the Father. John says the same glory that rested on that tabernacle in the Old Testament rests on Jesus In fact, those temporary instruments were fulfilled and surpassed by Jesus. What does John say? He was full of grace and truth at the end of verse 14. Jesus' appearance didn't elicit a whole lot of responses. You can go back to the Old Testament and read in Isaiah that there was no form or comeliness in him. He wasn't an attractive guy, it appears. He came from the little podunk town of Nazareth, probably even worse off than Milan, Illinois, where I grew up. And he had nothing about him that would naturally attract you to him. His parentage, his dad's a carpenter, and yet his teaching, his teaching, his miracles. And then his resurrected presence. They ripped aside all the facade of a common man and showed him as the incarnate word. Friend, There is not a whole lot that we can say that can add to the glories of who God is. But just take time to look and see how great our God is. How vast are His riches. How good His mercy is. That He would set His affections on us. On you. He's giving you this opportunity to see Him and to respond to him. Lord, we just pray that you would help us as your people to respond to the grace that you have shown us through your Son. We pray that many would call upon the name of Jesus in faith, in repentance, and that you would create for yourself many more children of God. We pray, Father, that you would give us the boldness to witness to these things and to commit ourselves to the spread of the gospel to the nations. Even as Ruth led us in prayer this morning, Lord, how can they hear if no one goes? And how can anyone go if we don't send them? And so, Lord, we pray that you would raise up many more missionaries. May the children of this church, may the the students here, may even some of us who are well-established in life, may you stir our hearts to go to the nations. First, by going to our neighbors. Give us a boldness to testify of these things. Let our yes and amen echo the apostles and the Baptists and even yours Oh, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.